Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following is a broadcast from the Global Authority in Mixed Martial Arts. The Shoe Dog Radio Network. It's the beginning of a new and excitingly different story. The big Here's your host, TJ DeSantis. Yes, 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 yes. Hey, everybody, it's B Town on the Sure Dog Radio Network. I'm TJ DeSantis, along with the executive editor, uh, editor-in-chief, rather, Mike Fridley. I-, I shouldn't screw up your your title. Same thing. Yeah. Big boy. Big boy pant-wearing Mike Fridley on this Monday. It, if I wore pants. Do you not wear pants? No. Nah. Wears- not when I'm doing radio. Oh, that makes me feel real comfortable. Yeah. I like my skin to touch the leather seat when I'm doing radio. It's the only way. I, it's the only way I can get comfortable and, and talk to the people. Just uh, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna end the wardrobe discussion. Actually, I'm not. I'm wearing a Chico's Bail Bonds T-shirt right now. Does that mean anything to you? Chico's Bail Bonds. Um, what movie is this from? The Bad News Bears. The Bad News Bears. Which one? The original. Is this Walter Matthau or? Yeah, Walter Matthau. Uh, the team okay. is sponsored by Chico's Bail Bonds. Alrighty, it says it on the back of their jerseys. Apparently, uh, you're not a fan. Uh, no, I. Uh, when I was a little kid, they actually used to air the TV series. Oh. It was an actual TV series called Bad News Bears. I didn't know that. Yeah, they were replays. I mean, like you know, they weren't. It wasn't a, a new airing when I was a kid. We were watching things from the 1970s, and uh, I loved the Bad News Bears, and I liked all the movies. Uh, especially the one where they go to the uh, the Tokyo Dome. Oh, the bad the guys. bears go to Japan. That's the worst of the three. Well, it's got it's got uh, Antonio Inoki in it, and it, the guy says uh, that's that guy fought Ali. He's legit. Yeah, that's true. Um, man, we went in a drastic uh, detour, and where I thought I was going to start this show. So let me let me go with my original show open here because I think it's a good one. Hey, everybody, it's B-Town on the Sure Dog Radio Network. I'm TJ DeSantis along with Mike Fridley. And the question is, when EA Sports releases UFC 3, do you put a back, belly-to-back suplex into an arm bar in the game? Because apparently that's a real thing that can happen. But if I saw it on a video game console, 
I would say absolutely not. This game is terrible because that's unrealistic. Demetrius Johnson defies logic. Yeah, let, let's get to the nuts and bolts of some real video game talk. If this was the THQ version of UFC, which I loved, I would say that this should be a Demetrius Johnson only feature because he's the only one to hit this thus far. I hate the EA Sports versions of UFC. UFC 1 and 2 are complete rat shit. Um, I, I gave both a, a lot of playtime. I like neither one of them. And part of the reason why is because everybody fights like Leota Machida. Everybody's yeah. got those moves. And in that game, if you gave it to Demetrius Johnson, well, guess what? Derek Lewis is going to be hitting the right. Uh, the, the, is what, what what did Demetrius Johnson call it today? The the mighty mouse whiz bar or something? I, I'll go with it. He can call it whatever he wants to, um, because he can pretty much whiz in the face of anybody that's in his division, and he's done. R. It Kelly, uh, man, yes. <laughs> uh, you know that I, I kind of had a flashback to EA Sports UFC One, where Misha Tate will throw a, a wheel kick. Okay, and uh, it bothers me. That really doesn't sit well with me. You can't throw acrobatic, crazy capoeira-type moves if you struggle hitting a high kick. You know what I mean? Dude, those games suck so bad. And I hate the submission game. Like we could go, we could go on for an hour about how the EA Sports UFC games suck. Um, I was in contact with one of the developers. And uh, this was a while ago when uh, our parent company had a good relationship with EA Sports. Right. And um, I, I tried to be nice and I tried to do everything. And the uh, so somebody at the company set me up with an interview with a developer. I can't remember his name. And basically I was like, please tell me that there's not going to be a submission mini game and it's going to be authentic and these other things. And basically he was offended that we would that, – that would be my question because, of course, the game has a, a submission mini game involved. And I was disgusted. He was disgusted. And guess what? Everybody who bought that piece of shit game was disgusted. And from what I've seen from UFC 3, or at least what I've heard, I, I don't know for sure if I've seen anything, don't expect any improvements until uh, until basically those developers at THQ get involved because they made a quality UFC game. EA Sports, Madden, is one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, within the last week, I probably have 12 hours of, uh, of Madden uh, 2018 playtime. Um, I love the NBA game, the baseball game, the UFC game. It's it's awful. It's well, awful. EA doesn't make a baseball game, for the record. They um, used to. They used, they used to. to. They lost their license. Uh, MLB mm -hmm. The Show uh, basically shut down that market, in my opinion, and it's great. Um, I, yeah, I uh, I hate to say this, and, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but um, someone uh, kind enough from EA listens to the show and he sent me an advanced copy of EA UFC one. Mm -hmm. I took it to GameStop immediately and traded it in. Yeah. It's bad, dude. Uh, by the way, don't try to take a game to GameStop before it's release date. They kind of freak <laughs> out a little bit. What'd they say? Uh, where'd you get that? We can't take that from you, but where did you get that? Where did you uh, come across that? Because it wasn't a promotional one. It was like mm -hmm. a retail one, but it was before the release. Yeah. Uh, like I felt like I was coming home after curfew. Oh, boy. Yeah. But uh, no, I tried it in and uh, made sure I got that final year of uh, NCAA football. Interestingly enough, 
I probably have five or six hours of gameplay with uh, NCAA football 2014 with uh, Denard Robinson on the cover. There you go. School up north. There you go. Uh, Literally still playing it. I keep an Xbox component video uh, to the uh, the man cave just so I can play that game. And it's the only game that I play on Xbox period. I have an Xbox one and a 360. Yep. Never Xbox one. Always play NCAA football on the 360. Always. I hate that it's not backwards compatible on the Xbox One. I hate it. I hate it. And never will be because of the... Well, can we just get over it? Can we figure it out, please? We're being denied the greatest sports title of all time. Possibly. It possibly is. I, I love that series, especially when you could port your draft class over to Madden. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, it, it was just it was fantastic. I mean, I'm I I think I'm no less than like 2033. That's the year in my NCAA universe. Oh, you still play? Oh yeah, yeah 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 yeah. I gotta do, do you something. Have, I gotta do something do you when have, people record. I gotta sit here and I play uh, college do football. You have an Xbox Live account? Um, I do not. I mean, I have I have an account, but I don't pay for it. So like, okay. So we're going to have to figure out a way to play because I need to kick your, kick your ass something bad at that game. Uh, show you what time it is. Yeah. I mean, you probably will. Iowa wasn't good that year either. So uh, if we you play with whoever you want, I'm playing with Ohio state. You play with whoever you want. Uh, Bring Alabama. Well, I, you know, it's funny you say that I am the head coach of Alabama in my 20, 30, whatever year I haven't, I've never coached, uh, never coached Iowa though in my uh, legacy, my, my career. Yeah, let's let's do this entire show backwards since we already had two opening leads. Yeah. Instead of instead of Ohio or Minnesota, I have a special edition of Ohio or Iowa. Ooh. All right. Just for you. You know they you square are, off. You are a, We're like three or four weeks away from the Buckeyes and the Hawkeyes. Of course. And it's a it's a good tradition, and uh, believe it or not, I have nothing but respect for your program. And it's always been like that. I was a uh, up early 80s i remember hayden fry and uh you guys had some great players and you guys ran us off the field uh one time in the early 80s i remember my dad was uh quite upset so i actually have uh, early childhood memories of you taking it to buckeyes i'm sure that was probably the last time iowa defeated the buckeyes early 80s Mm, you guys have beat us pretty bad in trestle's era it was one of trestle's uh down years um he he did pick it up back then um, I can't remember the exact circumstance. It was before the Terrell Pryor stuff, but uh, that was a down year for us. And I'm pretty sure Iowa beat us pretty bad that year. Mm. We, we lost like four or five games that year, unfortunately. I know that sounds crazy, but uh, I, I swear it happened. Um, okay. So Ryan McGee of ESPN has penned a tremendous story, TJ, on visiting locker rooms in college football. And the long tradition of mental warfare that goes on uh, from shady medical equipment for your injured players to painting, uh, I guess, in Colorado, the University of Colorado. They have nothing but messages as opposing players walk to the visiting locker room that lets them know the health dangers of playing in, in high altitude. And mentioning uh, possible life-threatening things that could happen. Oh, geez. And, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a mental game. And uh, reading the story, this is a, a story that I heard a long time ago and actually forgot about and is rehashed in Ryan McGee's piece. Either Ohio State or Iowa football program 
has the dubious extinct, uh, uh, distinction, if you will. I, I actually have a lot of respect for this of painting the visitor's locker room pink as a psychological weapon to get inside players' heads. And it was done by a, a coach with a psychiatry background. I'm sorry, not psychiatry, psychology background. So in his mind, this is to inflict a feminine aspect out of the visiting team. Is this the University of Ohio State, which I will tell you our, uh, our current head coach, Urban Meyer, is a psychology grad from the University of Cincinnati? It's probably a psychology grad to try to figure out what the hell is wrong with himself and why he gets the upset stomach every time he gets stressed out. <laughs> or was it somebody from the University of Iowa? And I will tell you that this locker room is still pink. And I will tell you more once you answer. Is this Ohio or is this Iowa? It's Iowa, and uh, even the urinals are pink. Everything's pink in the damn thing. Do you know who is responsible for the pink locker room? I think it's Hayden Fry. It is Hayden Fry, who yeah. I've already mentioned. Um, psychology background, uh, has a psychology degree, and uh, felt that it was uh, in the best interest of the program to uh, make the visitors sit in a pink locker room. And uh, this was rehashed, like I said, by Ryan McGee of ESPN. And he's got a great anecdote from uh, Jim Harbaugh, who finds the practice disturbing. And basically, anytime that that school up north, U of M, uh, visits visits the University of Iowa, they completely cover the walls in white, and they uh, they apply their own U of M logos over top of the pink. Obviously, this is something that that Jim Harbaugh feels uh, impacts his team, so he covers. Up. What do you what do you got to say about that? I mean, Harbaugh is ridiculous, but uh, I I can see why you would want to do that. Also, too, like when you think pink, don't think like neon pink. Like it is the softest baby girl welcome to the world pink that you've ever seen in your entire life. Like it is Nina. Uh, it is it's, like salmon. It's Nina Hartley vagina pink. I'm not gonna comment on that, but to each it's an 80s their porn own. reference. Yeah, no, it is. It is super, 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 super pink. And yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. So uh, another thing for you, another little bit of Iowa football trivia for you. Uh, Hayden Fry wanted his team to act and conduct and look professional, and this is why the University of Iowa football Hawkeyes um, wear the same. Uniform as a Pittsburgh Steelers. Interesting. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's a it's an interesting point, and uh, I can see the uh, at least going back to the before the spread really took over the Big Ten. I really looked at Iowa as one of those schools like Ohio State that was basically three yards in a cloud of dust, and uh, w with other coaches brought the brought the spread formation, and obviously I uh, um, I. I I'm passionate about Urban Meyer as a recruiter, but as an X's and O's coach, and especially as an offensive coordinator, I'm not a fan. I don't like the spread. I like the way that uh, Hayden Fry ran his football program in the 80s, uh, Earl Bruce, Woody Hayes, Jim Tressel. I'm more of a fan of that style of Big Ten football. Um, Iowa last defeated Ohio uh, in 2004, 33-7. Yep, that's uh, Tressel. And their last meeting was, let's see here. Uh, in 2013, when Ohio State defeated Iowa 34-24, um, 
Bottom line, no one ever trounces Iowa, ever. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it has happened, but Iowa can lose to anybody on any given Saturday, including uh, the University of North Dakota. But mm-hmm. n- nobody nobody smashes Iowa, uh, which you can see a couple weeks back when they narrowly lost to Penn State, the number four team in the country. Yeah, definitely not a stepping stone. I have always respected uh, Iowa, and it has been a while since we've kicked their ass. I think I've, I've shared this story uh, before that uh, uh, I missed the first probably four minutes of an Ohio State-Iowa game in the 1990s. And we were down 14 to nothing very, very quickly. And imagine my surprise as I walk in literally at 12.07 and it's 14 nothing Iowa. Man. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's something. I think we won that game 56 to 14. You'd have to do some research on that one. But it, it got out of hand quickly. But we uh, were down 14 nothing. I believe you're talking about the game that took place in 1995 where mm-hmm. uh, John Cooper's Ohio State Buckeyes defeated Hayden Fry's Iowa Hawkeyes. Final score fifty six to thirty five. Fifty six thirty five. Okay, I'm sorry. I knew we scored. I knew we scored fifty six. That's a, that's a good memory. That's a really good memory. Um, largest margin of victory uh, took place in 1950 when the Buckeyes defeated the Hawkeyes eighty three to twenty one. But uh, yeah, the overall record Ohio State has forty six wins. To Iowa's 14. Ouch. Ouch. 1950. That would have been post-Paul Brown and pre-Woody Hayes. Paul Brown being the founder of the Cleveland Browns, the Cincinnati Bengals, innovator of many, many things football, and probably the greatest Buckeye of all time. This is your number one podcast for college sports. I'm TJ DeSantis. He is Mike Fridley. And uh, and gun control. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Before we get into the mixed martial arts mayhem that took place this last weekend, uh, my timeline was just blowing up with someone telling you your thoughts on gun control without really even knowing your thoughts on gun control. No, it's it's like they listened because they they messaged us about they, they they hit us up on it. Right. But they didn't. It's like they're trying to tell me they're like, hey. A-15s are, are weapons of war and should be banned. And I was like, okay, did you listen to what I said on, on Beatdown? Well, what about and, the know, coyotes was, and stuff like that? Like, we talked about that. Like, there, there are practical uses for those guns. That was off air, I think, when we talked about the coyotes. I don't think so. Maybe it was. It, 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 it might not have been. But either way, I remember saying that I felt that AR-15s and AKs, um, I'm not advocating for it, but I would understand under the circumstances and the picture of our country and what's going on if those were moved to class two or class three weapons, like a suppressor, like a machine gun. Right. Which those class of weapons have been used in crimes three times since the 1930s. So basically, when you're getting into that class of weapon and what you have to do to obtain something like that, it, crime is no longer an issue. A mass shooting under those circumstances, um, I don't want to say impossible, but uh, much, much less likely and pretty much the same as a ban. Really not much difference there between banning an AR-15, classifying it as a class two or th- class two or three weapon. All that does is if you are in the firearms industry and you need an AR-15 for research, uh, you need one for a, a suitable reason, you can get one. Other than that, you won't get one. So that was that was what I was saying. And then basically I'm being lectured about uh, how they're machines of war and should be banned. So if you're going to hit us up on gun control, at least listen to our points. Right. Understand I mean, don't turn off the radio show to write your email and just assume what we're going to say. 
Don't do that. Like, listen, absorb. You might even find that you agree with some of the stuff we're saying. And then feel free to uh, chat. I mean, we can have a town hall. We can do that if you want. Um, because I think no two people have the same exact view on gun control. I really don't believe that. And nobody has the clear conservative and the clear liberal opinion. If you do, you're just subscribing to labels, which I don't suggest anyone ever do. Um, but yeah. Can we all describe or all subscribe to the label of greatest of all time, the GOAT for Demetrius Johnson? Because the only way I can justify anyone feeling otherwise is you don't care about PEDs or USADA and you still have John Jones as the greatest of all time. But I can't have that. Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson the greatest man to ever step in an eight-sided cage. You've got a sponsor on that bill of legislation, sir. Um, no doubt, Demetrius Johnson, uh, for me, is the pound-for-pound uh, pound number one. And, uh, you know, let's let's just jump into some buy or sell because, for me, that was the first question I had for you. Buy or sell, TJ. Demetrius Johnson is the best mixed martial artist in the sports history. The Are you old, buying or selling I, that? I'm buying it. I'm buying it, and I have to. The only person that comes close to me is George St. Pierre. Um, John Jones would be there, but I'm with you. I, I the cloud that is over his head, I just I can't I can't buy that. I can't buy John Jones as the greatest of all time. Um, he may be able to come back, but I, I I highly doubt it. Demetrius Johnson edges out George St. Pierre on my scorecard for the greatest of all time. I'm also buying, and uh, there is a caveat here, and it is because John Jones, uh, to me, all of his accomplishments are tainted. I feel the same way about Anderson Silva. Um, So for me, it's really a a three-man race. It's uh, Demetrius Johnson, GSP, or Fedor. Um, I put GSP above Fedor with the the level of competition that he was facing. And uh, when you compare Demetrius Johnson and George St. Pierre, I feel like there's there haven't been any interruptions in the dominance of, of Demetrius Johnson. You know, once he established himself as this champion, he has run right through all the way to 10 now. Um, hasn't been uh, any any scandals, any allegations, uh, no brief retirements, no uh, hiatuses. He has done nothing but uh, defend that title. Um, one slight stain would be uh, ducking TJ Dillashaw, in my opinion. Uh, that was a fight that was offered at his weight that he was champion at. But um, in lieu of everything that happened this weekend, I, I feel like that's small potatoes. And we are clearly talking about the greatest mixed martial artist ever to lace up the gloves in Demetrius Johnson. Looking at Demetrius Johnson to like just one of the best representatives you could ask for uh, of the sport um, and really sort of exemplifies, I think, a strong contingent that makes up the MMA masses from the fan standpoint, like, they're, the, the casual fans may or may not be the type of people that will wear foil on their T-shirt. They might they might have some uh, rhinestones on their jeans. They might be a little ridiculous. Um, like a rhinestone cowboy. Oh, man. But for the most part, uh, especially coming from SureDog.com and, and, you know, learning a lot about the sport, uh, you know, from interacting with fans, you know, 15 years ago on the forums, there is a a large group of people that make up the MMA hardcore fan base that are very similar to Demetrius Johnson in personality. And um, I, I think that DJ is a, is a good representation of how you want 
you know, the greatest of all time to conduct themselves, but he's also a man of the people in a lot of ways. Yeah. Let me just say one other thing before I hop into the next buy or sell. I was laughing so hard on Twitter. I'm not going to say who it was, but it was a prominent mixed martial arts journalist. Literally, I'm talking five seconds before the, before the submission in the fifth round against Ray Borg. Literally typed, and I, I, and I don't have the, the exact verbiage because the tweet was deleted right away. Of course. But it, it was something along the lines of yawn, just like every other Demetrius Johnson fight. And then five seconds later, history. See, this, no. is, this is the thing that, that drives me absolutely crazy about Demetrius Johnson. Like, he wait, waits till the fifth. But th- this is what I like, though. I like it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I've said this before, and uh, it sounds bad when I say it, but I love late stoppages. And by that, I mean I love stoppages in the championship rounds, in the latter part of the fourth or, or fifth round. Um, what he did to, to Koji Horiguchi, what he did to John Moraga. The fact that, you know, usually when you get a fight that is over the halfway point or especially the three-quarter point uh, of a match, whether it's three rounds or whether it's five rounds, we're in a rinse and repeat pattern where we're just going to do this dance until the the end comes because largely the knockout power really isn't there. You're wise enough to the, the opponent's uh, submission offense. You're probably clinching up against the fence. You're tired. We've already jockeyed for position, and we're going to let the judges sort it out. That's what it feels like a lot of times. Uh, with Demetrius Johnson, no. His foot is on the gas pedal at all times. And what I especially liked in this fight, granted he wasn't in a, a bunch of trouble, I, I did like the fact that Ray Borg had his moments. Demetrius Johnson had his back taken. It, it looked like maybe he was in some trouble, but no. Coming back from adversity, even if it's just flashes of adversity, are what champions are made of. And Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson is one of the best champions the UFC will ever see. Dude, what a shrug off that was, too. When when Borg hopped on his back and just the way that he kind of shook him off. Yeah. No, I, like, I, I that, love that it. It was amazing. It was amazing. I absolutely right. love it. All right, next buy or sell. His arm bar of Ray Borg was the best submission in UFC history. It's so hard for me to wrap my head around what the best submissions in UFC history are. And also, too, my favorite submissions are definitely not, you know, the standard of what the best submissions are. Um, mm-hmm. I brought this up on Beaten After the Bell, and uh, I'll always remember it. Um, Dustin Hazlett's wizard Josh Berkman. to armbar on Josh Berkman. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely adore that one. Might be my favorite submission of all time mm-hmm. until Saturday night. This one might be it. You're going to do a... a uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Like, I want to say it's a belly-to-back suplex, but it's really not. I mean, he picked him up and he threw him, and in the air, he switches to the arm bar. Like, again, it, was a half, it was a half Nelson suplex like, is what it was. Okay. Uh, sign me up for that all day. Like, that's amazing to hit that for one. Like, even if he just got that throw in, you know, secured side mount or whatever he wanted from it, impressive stuff. We're going to put that on a video and, and have Stem, you know, scream face to pain. Uh, over the top of it, uh, but to finish with the armbar like that and to do it in the fifth round, if anybody ever says that Demetrius Johnson is boring, we're not friends. We can't be friends. Like you and I, we like different things in life. I don't care if it comes in the first round or if it comes in the fifth round. You pull off submissions like that, or you pull off submissions at all against a number one contender in a title fight, you are a cut above the rest. And if you don't like it, if you're boring, then 
you just want to watch the home run derby. You don't really like baseball. You just want to watch the home run derby. You 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 have ADD and you want flashy lights and you know that's fine. If if you would rather watch Ultimate Knockouts four than a UFC pay per view, that's on you. Okay, but I like high level technical fights, and when someone can pull off what Demetrius Johnson did in the fifth round, it even adds more excitement to me. Like, when when you look at a sport like uh, like soccer, for example, sometimes there might be a one nothing game, and the, the build, I have no other word for it other than foreplay, which I don't want to say, but like, the foreplay, the, the building, the excitement that leads up to that one moment where it's finally the climax of the entire journey. Spurt. That's awesome. I need it. I want it. Demetrius Johnson gives it to us. And uh, if you don't like Demetrius Johnson, I don't think you like mixed martial arts. I really don't. I can co-sign on this. Um, No arguments with me. That was uh, uh, what a career and what a performance. And for me personally, that was the greatest submission in UFC history. And, uh, it's weird because if you ask me what my favorite arm bar is, it would probably be Dustin Hazlett, Josh Berkman. But something about the stakes upon which this arm bar was executed. We're talking about Demetrius Johnson going for the record. We're talking about somewhat late in the fifth round. Uh, was it like at three something? So we're talking about the second half of the right. of the fifth round. The stakes, the visual. Um, just the amazement, the the hair that stood up on my arm as he transitioned from a throw to the arm was just like, did he really just do this again? In my opinion, absolutely the greatest submission in UFC history. And uh, obviously, uh, Demetrius the GOAT. Uh, buy or sell, TJ. Demetrius Johnson's string of title defenses is best in UFC history in terms of quantity to quality ratio. So if you if you need some expansion on that, we are comparing other long title reigns here. You're comparing what Anderson Silva did and the time he did it against who he did it against, against Demetrius Johnson's. You're also uh, pl- applying the wares of George St. Pierre in his title run. And uh, Matt, Matt Hughes and any others. So we're, we're talking qu- quantity right. to quality and the ratio thereof. Help me out here because I can only do it so well in my head. Mm-hmm. George St. Pierre... His last fight, he defeated Johnny Hendricks. Johnny Hendricks. His fight before that, he defeated. Help me. I'll pull it up. Thank you. Can I get Can I get some uh, Jordan Brain soundbite here? Uh, uh, I can't think that that far back. As soon as I say it, we're both gonna be like, duh. I know. I want to say it was Thiago Alves, but that was like at UFC 100. Nick Diaz. Nick Diaz. Um, all right. Okay, so help me out here. Give me all the title defenses from the second run of George St. Pierre. Johnny Hendricks, Nick Diaz, Carlos Condit, Jake Shields, uh-huh. Josh Koscheck, uh-huh. Dan Hardy, uh-huh. Thiago Alves. Yep. John Fitch. BJ Penn. Penn. Okay. John Fitch. Okay. Matt Serrett. Okay. Uh, that's it for me. George St. Pierre wins. Um, I agree. I, I would love to give it to Demetrius Johnson, but the fact is he is just a cut above the rest. Um, the best fighter that he 
ever defeated in this title run is Joseph Benavidez, um, followed by uh, John Dodson, um, and, and the rest just don't add up to the Fitches of the world, the Alveses of the world, uh, the BJ Penn, the Carlos Condit. Um, Nick Diaz stylistically isn't a good matchup for uh, George St. Pierre, so it's 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 a GSP that's a, that's fight. That's a dog where, fight for anybody. Yeah, it's a GSP, you know, favored fight. But I mean, no, I don't think anybody wants to fight Nick Diaz unless they have to. Um, yeah, I go GSP. Fully agree. And I rank them GSP one, Demetrius Johnson two, Anderson Silva three, uh, and probably Fedor fourth if we're considering his uh, his pride run. Uh, lots of cans in the in the Fedor well, run. Help me out here. If you want to talk about the Fedor run and the title defenses, how many title defenses did he have? Because a lot of those fights were non-title fights or part of two? the Grand Prix. Two, maybe. Yeah. Not many. Mm-mm. Not many. So I mean, I think Anderson or I think Vandalay Silva defended his title twice. Uh, he beat uh, Hiromitsu Kanehara, uh, Sakuraba Kazushi. Um, I, was Kanehara a title fight? At, yeah, probably 23, absolutely was. And was the Ricardo Arona rematch uh-uh. for a belt? Uh-uh. No? Uh-uh. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to figure out what was going on in Japan. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, so, so for me, uh, I'll co-sign with you. I mean, in in the exact same order, uh, Anderson Silva's run was good, but I mean, the middleweight division was a wasteland. Uh, you know, I mean, who's the toughest guy he defended against? It's, it's very hard. It's very mm-hmm. hard. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, GSP one, DJ two. Uh, Fedor Emelianenko defended his title three times. Uh, Nogueira. Did he beat Nogueira? And then did he defend against Nogueira? Let's see here. What to pull up his uh, his record here? I just confirmed. He beat Krokop. That was a title fight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the Noguera one was probably for the Grand Prix. Title. Was it was it the Mark Coleman fight in uh, in the United States? Oh, was that a God, title fight? I hope not. Might could could be. Yeah, it was. Might. It was. It was. Because it was scheduled for five. Yeah. Okay. So. Anyways, we, uh, we we pretty much agree on the, at least the, uh, the the top three there. Um, something I want to bring to the show on Mondays in an effort of transparency for our listeners, I really want to talk rankings. Um, the listening public isn't privy to our conversations behind the scenes. Uh, what are the debates about uh, about rankings and who deserves to go where? So I figure on Mondays, at least following an update, maybe we can uh, just uh, briefly – uh, engage with our listeners and let them know what has happened. And if there's a, if there's any discrepancy between uh, how you and I see things, please do get us on Twitter, TJ DeSantis, Twitter, my, at Mike Fridley on Twitter, um, hopping right in at heavyweight Fabricio Verdum, uh, obviously making quick work of a late notice opponent. Uh, obviously no need to really move him just solidifies his spot still behind uh, Stipe Miocic at heavyweight. Um, obviously no disagreement from you there. No, none whatsoever. Uh, middleweight. Talos Letus was uh, whooped by Brad Tavares. Um, pretty simple math here. Brad Tavares replaces Talos Letus on the bubble list. Extremely straightforward. But now we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what is going on in rankings discussion. And it comes at lightweight. 
with one Mr. El Kukui, Tony Ferguson, putting on an amazing performance against uh, Kevin Lee at UFC 216. TJ, who is the top 155-pound fighter, both in the UFC and abroad? Is it Conor McGregor with the undisputed title? Or is it Tony Ferguson, who seems to have a little better resume at 155? And uh, not to discount... Uh, a name here that is worthy of discussion, Habib Nurmagomedov. Um, I think a lot of people will discount him for not being able to make weight and this being a problem and not being so active. But uh, for some people, he's in the conversation. So you tell me the way you see it. How do you rank these top three lightweights in the UFC? You said Conor McGregor is the undisputed champion, not to get semantic with you, but uh, if, Tony if Ferguson you is disputing him. Uh, he is, the the title definition? is disputed, yes. Um, oh, but, but he's well, the official that, that's the, that, yeah, that That's the disputed title. Right. The undisputed title is Connors. So um, just, just for clarification. Are you sure? Because if you're an undisputed champion, it means no one has claim to that belt. Uh, Tony Ferguson can claim that he's the best fighter in the world. He, you know, he, he has a belt as well. Like, I don't know. I, that's why they did UFC 44 undisputed because Randy Couture had a interim championship and Tito Ortiz had a, official championship the winner was undisputed okay we can we can play semantics and we can play it like that way but uh either way who are your top three i don't know why i die on the sword for these stupid arguments this is a this is a problem with me um i i have to go with conor mcgregor because he's the official champion um keep in mind how many fights has he had in the ufc at 155 one you know (laughs) so uh very difficult for me to like wholeheartedly believe that uh, especially when you have an undefeated uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, who Jordan and I have dubbed Hubib, because it just seems like no one remembers who the hell he is. And uh, I don't know. Like, what a weird moment on the broadcast where Daniel Cormier is defending uh, Nurmagomedov and going, oh, yeah, he, he had surgery in Germany. And Brogan's like, what kind of surgery? Well, he had some testing done. What kind of testing? Uh, I don't know. Like, what the hell is going on there? Um, I, I love the fact that Rogan is grilling Daniel Cormier, but just what an odd instance. Um, and Tony Ferguson, there's no, there's no one better right now in the UFC than Tony Ferguson, right? Like, he has the longest winning streak. He shined. Um, but if you ask me, like, and, and again, this isn't how rankings are supposed to be done, in my opinion. We're not saying who would beat who in a potential matchup. We're talking about who the best is at this time. Um, I think Conor McGregor does, in fact, beat Tony Ferguson. Um, Ferguson is beatable. He gets hit way too much. And I, I just think that Conor McGregor would would touch him and at some point get him out of there. But um, Tony Ferguson, like if you make me pick one, like if I say, hey, there can only be one champion, pick one. Is it Conor McGregor or is it Tony Ferguson? Well, Tony Ferguson deserves it more. Um, but I, I would go in order, number one, Conor McGregor, number two, Tony Ferguson, number three, uh, Hubeeb. Hubeeb, I like it. Um, just for, for more clarification, um, head-to-head and actually who you feel would win a fight actually is part of the criteria in the Sherdog rankings. Well, and it, uh, yeah, it is. Oh, well, that's, what that's, happened, what happened to Josh Gross's uh, snapshot in time? Because Josh Gross had, Josh Gross hasn't been here in twelve years. But I, I, I mean, here's my thing: you can't. This is why I don't partake in in rankings discussion because I, I really don't feel that 
if I say so-and-so is going to win and you disagree with me, now mm-hmm. I just have a personal bias. Even if it's not me liking someone more than the other, I like their chances more than someone. To me, you have to rank based on what these fighters have done and what they have done most recently. Um, Conor McGregor defeated Eddie Alvarez. Eddie Alvarez was the number one fighter in the world. He deserves that spot. Tony Ferguson hasn't defeated the number one lightweight in the world yet. That's Conor McGregor. He cannot attain the number one uh, spot without beating number one. So here's the argument in support of Tony Ferguson, and you basically just made it, that he has an established resume at 155 pounds, a track record, a portfolio of accomplishments within the weight class. Conor McGregor does not. He has the one big win, but when it, it came down to my vote and who I felt was the who was the number one fighter, I think right now, if they were headlining UFC 217, I think Conor McGregor would be the favorite, and I think Conor McGregor would win. And he got my number one vote just because he is holding that title, and I do think that he would beat Tony Ferguson straight up. So, And uh, and, and honestly, if we're talking college football rankings, it, it's the same same criteria. Who, who would beat who? Who lines up against who and who wins on a neutral field? So kind of kind of the, the, the same premise. So there were people that uh, actually uh, championed for Tony Ferguson to take over that number one spot. Uh, a few other people felt that that was not, uh, uh, not the case because of the Eddie Alvarez win, which you mentioned, uh, Eddie Alvarez was number one to, uh, Connor took it from him. Tony has yet to beat that guy at number one yet, right. but, uh, ho- hopefully we'll get his shot. Well, um, uh, according to old criteria of the rankings at suredog.com, And I don't know if this is still protocol, but, do we not have the right to strip Conor McGregor of his ranking if he does not fight in a year's time? Um, actually, we don't do a year. Um, because of USADA, um, th- things are weird and testing platforms and delays and people pulling out and things like this. We've actually moved it to 18 months. And even then, you have to be a little bit fluid because you'll run into a situation where I cannot remember who it was specifically. Um, we're not talking about Cain Velasquez, but Cain Velasquez sparked the argument. Someone on the rankings has not fought in 18 months. They had a fight scheduled just within the 18 month 18 month period, mm-hmm. and their opponent their opponent pulled out because of injury, not them. It sounds Thus like Tyron fought, Woodley, like back uh, in the day. <laughs> it it wasn't Woodley. It, this is something that has happened within the last two months. Oh, got it. Um, so uh, this is uh, this is something that is ongoing, and basically we felt because it wasn't him that pulled out, it was his opponent that we should be fluid, uh, let the situation stand because the, and and obviously there wasn't somebody that were screaming, you know, hey, I, I deserve this spot, take that guy out of there. There wasn't that fighter on the bubble list that was screaming for movement. So we try to play these things fluid. Eighteen months is now the the, the benchmark post USADA. So so that's where we go. See, this is what I'm saying. Like rankings, rankings are not fun. Um, it's very difficult to wrap my head around some of these arguments and, and feel pat like this is why I'll never be a great radio guy. This is why I'm not a Rush Limbaugh. Uh, what's his nuts on freaking Fox Sports with Shannon Sharp? What's his name? The the guy Colin Coward? No, not Colin Coward. Skip Bayless. Skip like, Bayless. Yeah. I can't form an opinion that I will die on the cross for, except stupid semantical arguments about definitions of words. Apparently, like it's niche. Uh niche. Um, niche, uh, a, a son of a niche. All right. I'm going to call you a niche if you don't start saying niche. Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. Uh, it, outside of like one, two or three ranking discussions, it just, I, I, I feel nothing about them. I feel absolutely nothing. If we're arguing who's number 10 and who's 11, I, I don't care. Hopefully they fight and you'll figure it out.
Okay. So let's segue to uh, Bantamweight where we are actually talking about number 10. Uh, Darian Caldwell picks up a big win at uh, Bellator 184, uh, edging Eduardo Dutu Dantas. Uh, moving in to number 10, taking the place of UFC fighter Aljamain Sterling. Um, our very own star of the Sure Dog Radio Network, Ant Walker, uh, I remember uh, in this as part of this panel was opposed to uh, Caldwell entering on uh, Aljamain's behalf. I actually felt like it was the right move, and the 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 body of work that Caldwell is putting together at 135, I felt justified the move. Um, we try not to bring belts into this too much, which sounds weird after we just championed Connor for having the the UFC title. But uh, tell me how you feel about that. Does Darian Caldwell deserve recognition as a top 10 fighter at 135? Sure. But, but I mean, like, here's the thing. Great. He's in the top 10. Awesome. He's the champion of his promotion. Awesome. How high can he get being the champion of his promotion, not fighting the best in the world? It almost doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, unless we have some exodus of the UFC's Bantamweight division that go to Bellator and can fight him, the rankings really don't mean much for Bellator fighters. Uh, this is something that I hit on when I talked to Rory McDonald and Douglas Lima. Like, they have the opportunity, fighting one another, to really make an impact atop the welterweight rankings. But for other divisions in, in Bellator, it's going to be very difficult to get any higher than a 10 or a 9 um, when you're not fighting the best in the world. Like, Ben Askren. Like, Ben Askren... Who knows? Ben Askren could be the best welterweight in the world. We don't know. And we're never, ever going to find out. And uh, outside of, again, number one, number two, number three, which the only discussion that really needs to happen is when are these guys fighting? And more often than not, it happens. That's all that I care about in rankings discussion because everything else is just a semantic argument that really means nothing at the end of the day. It doesn't – like being ranked 10 or being ranked 20 – doesn't change your pay. It doesn't change your notoriety. It doesn't change anything except your placement on an internet website that I love SureDog.com. Don't get me wrong. I love SureDog. I think that our rankings are better than the UFC's rankings. I think they mean more. I think there's more thought put into them. But what do they mean at the end of the day? Nothing. If you want to make a ranking system that honestly affects anything, and even then it won't affect anything, you have to get everybody together, journalists, and not whoever the UFC can find to sign on the dotted line to throw their picks. Like I see movement in the UFC's rankings when people haven't even fought. They, they, they move up and they haven't fought, and there's no even real movement in that division, no fights that matter, but all of a sudden the rankings are released and this guy moved up two spots. What, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Like, knock it off. Um, no, I, I, what I love about the UFC rankings is when someone gets a title shot out of nowhere and they were number eight, right. and the next thing you know, right. they're number two. Right. Well, just, I mean, just because they're getting a title shot. We got to do what we're, you know, it, it, the, the rankings in the UFC are more like uh, stock prices. Oh, your stock's r- risen. You're on the, you're the co-main event of this fight, so we're going we're gonna to bump you up here in the, the rankings. That, that's not how rankings work. Um, rankings are, are great in theory, unfortunately. Uh, no one's rankings, including the UFC's, matter, especially when the UFC has the number four, number five, number six, number eight, number nine, number ten guy fighting for a title. Uh, what does that ranking mean? Absolutely nothing. I thought it was going to mean something when it came to Reebok money, but it ended up not. So rankings don't mean shit in mixed martial arts. 
more rankings that don't mean shit. John Moraga back in at 10, replacing Dustin Ortiz at flyweight. And pound for pound, Tony Ferguson. This one I actually think is interesting. Mm. Tony Ferguson jumps in the uh, the pound for pound top 10. And for me, this one is kind of important. This isn't splitting hairs about who's number nine and who's number 10. This is recognizing as a panel, as an entity, not as a person, as an individual, as an entity, something that a panel of people agree on. These are the top 10 mixed martial artists on earth. As of now, Tony Ferguson has made the top 10 and he has leapfrogged Josie Aldo and Michael Bisping and is directly behind Rob, Robbie Lawler. So Ferguson at eight, Lawler at seven, Aldo at nine, Bisping at 10. How do you feel about that? No argument here. The pound for pound ranking is actually something that I, I do care about um, because we're talking about the greatest fighters right now in the world. Uh, again, what does it mean? Not much. It's it's semantical arguments, but I think that ranking uh, pound for pound top ten means a lot more than you know number eight through fifteen when it comes to divisional rankings, especially when we're talking about divisions um, where you know a guy like Caldwell is not going to fight anyone ahead of him to in, in, that's in the UFC. Um, no, no argument there. Um, I, I, I'm curious in your opinion. How much, how much do your pound for pound rankings right now vary from your pound for pound rankings all time? Mm. How do they all time? Well, there's there's obviously some all time people that are on my list that aren't active enough to be in this top ten. Right, uh, and being, and being the, George Saint Pierre, Fedor. Right. The reason I bring this up is because I think just until the last five or six years. That list has actually been different. For a long time, the pound-for-pound pound ranking, I think, was just whatever it was right now. Like, your pound-for-pound pound ranking in 2008 was probably your pound-for-pound pound ranking of all time as well. And now we're getting to the point where enough people have exited the sport that obviously you can't put Fedor on a list. You can't put um, George St. Pierre on a list. But at one point, like, those guys were in that same exact order you know, present moment and probably all time. Now, I see what you're saying. Um, every now and then something will come up an occasion will unfold where it really, really requires some discussion. And, uh, one of the things that I can remember really causing some waves during ranking discussion was with Ronda Rousey in terms of pound for pound. Right. Um, there was a couple of people on staff that felt that she not only deserved to be ranked in a, uh, a genderless or co-ed uh, pound for pound list, but that she could be as high as number one on that list. And uh, we had a staffer at the time that basically said that he would rather eat his own face than, than rank her accomplishments above Gilbert Melendez, who at that time was number 10, who had, who had fought the best for years. Right. And, and Ronda Rousey coming in and dominating a, uh, a newer crop of right of women. So well, I mean, keep, it, it, keep in mind, there were people out there literally that wrote articles about how Ronda Rousey would beat Floyd Mayweather in a fight. Okay, Floyd Mayweather would beat Ronda Rousey in a judo match. <laughs> oh man, you want to talk about the like the stock changing on fighters? Like, oh <laughs> man, like that's the that's that's terrible. That's like the meanest thing you could say. I, I think it's valid. I think I, I think it's truth. I think you would. No argument here. 
no argument here. I'm just not, right. I'm not going down that road. <laughs> All righty. Um, in other combat sports news, Jim Lampley, voice of HBO, Boxing After Dark, and a few other uh, theme shows that they have at uh, at HBO. Former wide world of sports broadcaster, NFL voice, Jim Lampley, literally called fights on HBO for 29 years now. Wow. Has re-upped with the network for five more years. He's 68 years old, four-time sports Emmy winner, not nominee, winner. Started career with ABC as a sideline college football reporter in 1974. Still to this day, calling the biggest fights in combat sports. In my opinion, nobody is even in this guy's stratosphere in combat sports. He is the number one, number one chair. I believe that's what you, is that how you refer to it? Play by play sits in the one chair, caller commentator sit in the two. He is by far the best number one in all of combat sports. And there's nobody even in his discussion. What do you, what, how do you, how do you chime in on this? I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Jim Lampley because I don't watch a ton of boxing, but uh, I find him great. Um, easy to listen to, intelligent. Um, there was one call that apparently caused a lot of people to think that he was drunk when he was going, bang, bang, bang. One of the greatest calls in boxing history. Um, which, I mean, was a little over the top to me, but I have no context for it. I didn't watch that fight. I just watched like the 90-second uh, YouTube clip of it. Um, I've been told that I sound a little bit like Jim Lampley, which sounds like a, an, an insane compliment, and I don't know if it's true, but I'll take it. Um, I, uh, I, 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 I don't think there are a lot of great play-by-play announcers in combat sports. Um, Jim Lampley is one of them, um, probably the best. I think Mara Ronaldo is one of them. Um, you know, if, if we had a pound for pound list of play by play, uh, commentators, it would have to be five because I'm definitely not able to fill out a 10. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bob Sheridan, another guy for boxing. Uh, it, it, it seems to me like the boxing guys are way ahead of the MMA guys, but it, it's literally experience. We're talking about Jim Lampley here entering his 30th year. Of, of calling fights for HBO. And just to, just to kind of educate you on this, he was doing boxing at ABC before then. He literally was the, the wide world sports guy. Uh, I, I might be dating myself a little bit and you might be a little too young to remember this, but wide world of sports used to be an ABC program on Saturdays. And there used to be live boxing on Saturday afternoon on ABC. And, uh, and Jim Lampley was your guy. So uh, just uh, props to Jim Lampley. Uh, big thanks for him. Wanted to give him some credit. Um, if you have some time, please go back into the SureDog archive and read an exclusive story that Joseph Santa Liquido did with Jim Lampley last year, where Jim Lampley talked about getting into boxing. And basically, ABC wanted to part ways with Lampley. According to him, this is what he told Joseph, ABC was unloading contracts at this time. Uh, they were focusing on different sports things and they were eliminating wide world of sports and had no need for Jim Lampley. So they put him on boxing telecast basically to get rid of him, not knowing that he was a gigantic boxing fan who had personally attended Ali Liston as a child. His wow. mom, his mom dropped him off so he could watch Ali Liston. That is crazy. <laughs> ABC had no idea that he was this gigantic boxing head. HBO capitalizes 30 years later, still have Lampley. 
there you go. Wow. I know he hates mixed martial arts. I wouldn't say he hates it, but like his quote about the sophistication. Right. I Come don't on. think that I don't I don't think that you can watch a boxing card and disagree with him. Uh, yeah, um, but 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 I mean, you can also say the exact same thing about mixed martial arts and fighting overall. Like mixed again, oh man, I'm going to get the hate for this. Mixed martial arts is much more uh fitting of the word fight than boxing is. I'm sorry. Sure. And okay. um you know, but it, it, it goes back to this time where we came up at a time where there was an honest-to-goodness rivalry between boxing and mixed martial arts, primarily pushed by Senator John McCain. And you, you take away McCain and you take away the, the pay-per-view ban for the UFC, I don't think anybody really argues about boxing and mixed martial arts and which one's better because they're completely different. No one argues, baseball's better than football. Well, Okay, you like baseball better than football. Shut up. Like th that's how I feel when people talk about boxing and and mixed martial arts. I personally don't like boxing as much as I do uh, MMA. But with that said, this is the thing about combat sports. I love combat sports of all varieties. I really do. Uh especially if you take the time to learn about the athletes, who they are, what they're fighting for, uh, why they're fighting, what brought them to that point. Like it's easy to fall in love with the narrative of a fight. And when I say fight, I mean any combat sport. And, um, yeah, I, I, I just – I don't uh, – I'm kind of sick of the argument about, oh, boxing is, is more sophisticated than mixed martial arts. Like, to a certain extent, it's striking is, yeah. But you want to talk about overall strategy and, and, and the thought process of formulating a strategy uh, when it comes to entering a fight? I think mixed martial arts, you have to think about three serious areas of fighting before you can establish a game plan where in boxing it's like, okay, am I going to be aggressive or am I going to counter? Uh, I think there's a little more to it than, than just I'm am simplifying. I going to be aggressive. I'm, I'm simplifying, but do you understand what I mean? Like, like, okay. I absolutely do. Let me, let me just make a point for Jim Lampley. And I think what he's saying, he's not trying to say that there's more going on in a boxing ring. That is quite simple. If you watch a mixed martial arts fight, there's men fighting on the ground. Right. There's he's men fighting in the clinch. I get it. He's, he's talking about just the overall class of, of mastering one's craft. Right. It is true because it's boxing, because it's limited. You're right. going to see more of it. But I think his point is the UFC and MMA is so young that you have not seen somebody yet that has come in and showed a master class possession of skills in each area. And there's been, there's been hints of it. And I remember some people were saying with BJ Penn, who uh, at one point looked like a good boxer, um, was exposed uh, in, in several of his fights uh, after the, the Frankie Edgar run. But before then, he was considered one of the best boxers in the UFC and uh, obviously an extremely high-quality, uh, high-level grappler. But uh, I, I agree with Jim. There really hasn't been somebody that came in and showed mastery of all of the assets of mixed martial arts. And I'm hoping – that within the next 10 years, we might see things like that. And, uh, you know, and when we talk about guys like Aaron Pico, who obviously had a, a hard beginning with, uh, you know, with his debut being, being dispatched up so quickly, guys like this that grew up golden gloves, boxing grew up in a wrestling gym, grew up doing jujitsu. One of these days, TJ, we're going to see someone that ends Lampley's statement forever because they are going to show, mastery in every right. element of mixed martial arts because 
they trained all three or even four if you want to combine some other elements. Right. They did these in tandem and brought them to the cage. Right. That's in, his- in, in, in that person, the oldest they are right now, in my opinion, is probably 16, 17 years old. Like they've had to be doing this for a very, very long time. And, and we're talking about um, if you're going to be doing that from a young age, the sport has to be established. You know what I mean? Like George St. Pierre, to me, epitomized what the best well-rounded mixed martial artist could look like. And I don't think George is, I think George is a master of mixed martial arts. I don't think George is a master of wrestling. I don't think George is a master of kickboxing. I don't think George is a master of jujitsu, but forever in mixed martial arts, it's been, you're, you're better suited being good at everything and great at nothing. No, I can, I can co-sign with that. Um, Moving on, getting past uh, Jim Lampley discussion. Gene LaBelle, TJ, is celebrating a birthday. October 9th. Yes, that Gene LaBelle. Milo Savage, Gene LaBelle. Judo Gene. How old do you think he is? 87? Close. He's 85. Okay. 85. And it's kind of a stretch to ask you, hey, what's your favorite uh, Judo Gene moment? Because uh, uh, with his age and our age and the discrepancy there, there's probably not much to go on here. But uh, I have throw a something favorite. at me. What, what I, you I got? Have, yeah, I have a favorite uh, Gene LaBelle uh, moment. Does, um, does this involve Steven Seagal? No, no, it should because I know that story as well. But uh, I, I've had a chance to interview Gene on several occasions and just a fantastic man. Um, hearing him talk about a young Ronda Rousey is pretty great. Hearing him talk about a young uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, there are there are people that are walking this planet that when they are gone, we'll never meet another person like them in our lifetime. And Gene LaBelle is one of those people. And, and having the opportunity to interview him twice, uh, true, true highlights of my career in, in broadcasting. You're going to have to educate me here real quick because I am not a pro wrestling head and nor do I follow judo. So what is the connection between Rowdy Roddy Piper and Gene LaBelle? Was he his trainer or something? Yeah, he trained uh, Roddy Piper to uh, wrestle. Okay, I, I did not know that. Yep. I did not know that. The only thing I remember from Rowdy Piper was his outfits in the 80s and he had some movie where he, he put the sunglasses on and he could see the aliens. Oh, yeah, I'm talking yeah, about? yeah. I know what you're talking about. I don't know the name of that movie. Uh, Breen has referenced it a few times on... Uh on the JVS, but yeah. Yeah. I remember that. So 85, uh, October 10th, TJ, Brandon Vera and his, uh, multiple divisional UFC titles. How would you think he is? <laughs> uh, Brandon Vera is going to be 39 years old. Brandon Vera is 40, which okay. surprised me. Brandon Vera is actually older than me, which is weird because it felt like he was a young prospect when those things were coming out, oh man, this guy's going to be 205 champ. He's going to move to heavyweight or no, it was going to be, he was going to move from heavyweight to 205. Right. He's, he's going to be the greatest, uh, greatest mixed martial artist ever. He's this crazy BJJ black belt that has his knees. He won a one night tournament. Uh, was it, was it a WEC tournament? I think, it, I think, I, I think it, it was a WEC or IFC. One of the two. Yeah. I, whatever it was, eight man tournament, uh, came out on top. How old did oh, we already went this? Yeah. Brandon, Brandon Vera, 40 years old. Also on October 10th, Carla Esparza. Ooh. Hmm. What you got there? Uh, got to be younger than me. Uh, I'll say Carla Esparza is 27 years old. Carla is 30. No kidding. 
Yeah, 30 years old on October 10th. You got a moment for her? Um, hmm. She did take it to Rose Nami Yunus. Yeah, probably winning, I mean, the ultimate fighter, winning, you know, the the, the championship, becoming the first ever strawweight champion. I mean, that that's her moment. Uh, unfortunately, it was quickly erased by Ioana Yu and Jacek and uh, the destruction that was put on display. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say winning the ultimate fighter for sure. I mean, I, I love her competing in the singlet before Reebok, like, uh, it showed a lot of character, where she came from, who she was. Uh, I like things like that. Yeah, I can dig it. I like to go to your backyard. I like to reference things that are, uh, I, at least I think, I didn't do any research on this, but I, I think he's from your region. If not, it's a neighboring state. Legend, Fred Eddish. Oh, yeah. Fred Eddish is from Minnesota. Yeah. Where from in Minnesota? What parts? <sighs> I think he's from up north. I think he's from like Brainerd. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I believe he is uh, licensed as a judge for mixed martial arts in the state of mm-hmm. Minnesota. Um, Fred Eddish. Uh, Fred Eddish got to be 55 years old. Fred Eddish is 62. Wow. Yeah, and and what, I found that number amazing because within the last 10 years, I'm gonna. It's, I, I think 10 years. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stick with 10 years. Uh-huh. Within the last 10 years, Fred Eddish actually returned to mixed martial arts. Because he he felt his legacy was so shit on uh, from his uh, appearance again. Was it Johnny Rhodes? Johnny Rhodes? Ray Rhodes? No, Johnny I, Rhodes. I, I don't know. He looked like a, a, a an assaulted victim. Like it was yeah. good. Really though, I mean, if if you look back um, at the time, it was a, a weird thing. But really, that was kind of a. I don't want to call him an innovator, but what he was doing with the butt scoot and the open guard was really the first person to do that in the UFC. Right. And, and it probably catches a, a rough rap, if you ask me, um, fighting somebody, uh, obviously an athletic superior guy and Johnny Rhodes. Um, yeah, 62 years old, Fred Eddish. Uh, I'm sure for you, just uh, your your greatest memory is uh, being from Minnesota, being a judge. And uh, I'll give him credit for in his 50s getting back in the ring and claiming a victory to uh, solidify uh, his legacy as uh, at least not a loser in the game. I really appreciated that. Uh, thought he was, uh, uh, with, you know, all things considered, an excellent account of himself to, to get back in and do that in his 50s. My friend and your friend, Wes Sims, Ooh. celebrating a birthday October 12th. How old do you think uh, Wesley Sims is? 41 years old. Wes is 38. Okay. I'm not doing too good this this time. We're handing out a lot of stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah. Wes Sims, a uh, friend of mine. Uh, he's retired. I can say that. Uh, interesting enough, he was a, a high school basketball star, which I'm sure you find hard to imagine with his height. Oh, yeah. From, uh, uh, it's, am- it's amazing that he would play basketball. Yeah, Amanda Clear Creek, Carol. So shouts to uh, Wes Sims. Uh, probably claims Lancaster as his hometown, but uh, we'll give out the school there. I've got October- my favorite. I got my favorite Wes Sims moment, if you don't mind. Please. The fact that he went out there on the Ryan Bennett charity show and threw the drop kick for the hitman. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff for, from Wes Sims. For free, did yep. that without without being paid. Yep. That's that's important to to note. Uh, October thirteenth, Matt Hughes, a recovering Matt Hughes. Yeah. Celebrating a birthday. How old do you think Matt is? Uh, 42 years old. Matt is 44. Well, I'm, I'm happy he's 44, and I'm happy this isn't a somber Matt Hughes would have been. Absolutely. And I'll just say my favorite Matt Hughes moment is having him with us today celebrating his 44th birthday on October 13th. Can you beat that one? Um, 
Maybe. Uh, you scum. Maybe. Maybe. No, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. You know what I love, though, about Matt Hughes? What's that? I absolutely love when, obviously, in, in mixed martial arts, it's all about um, your accomplishments. But in sports, a lot of ways, uh, you're remembered in how you deal with defeat. And when Matt Hughes lost to BJ Penn and BJ kissed him, Matt just kind of chuckled and laughed and went, eh. I lost. That forever made me a fan of Matt Hughes because he was so nonchalant and just, you know what? I got beat. I'm going to own it, especially with all the crap he was talking about BJ going, what is this guy doing moving up to fight me? He's a lightweight. I'm going to smash this guy. And uh, Matt Hughes, he he took it on the chin literally and uh, did so with grace. Now, before that fight, not to get on a, on a Matt Hughes dissing session here, but before that fight, wasn't he actually saying something about Frank Trigg talking about, oh, this guy can't even defend a rear naked choke. And then not only does BJ come up from 155, but hits an RNC for the tap. It's possible. It's possible. I remember something about that. One of my favorite things, too, when asked uh, about Dennis Holman, uh, someone asked Matt Hughes, hey, are you ever going to fight Dennis Holman again? And Matt said, you know, the funny thing about Dennis Holman is, I'm the only guy he can seem to beat. I thought that was kind of kind of true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna not like the pronunciation here, but I'll give it to you as I have it. Carolina Kovalkevich. Carolina Kovalkevich. Close enough. Celebrating a birthday on October 15th. How old? Um, 26. 32. Wow. Wow. Yeah, a little little older than I thought. Way older than I thought. Yeah, that one had me going to last one, October 16th, the answer, Frankie Edgar. Uh, Frankie Edgar is 36 years old. You hit it on the money. Yes. He'll be, thir- he'll be 36 on October 16th. What What do you have for us in terms of uh, Frankie moments? There's a lot. Uh, I mean, the, the, the series with, with BJ, the series with Benson Henderson, um, Frankie also wears ridiculously large tie knots when he ties his knot, uh, ties his tie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, there are a lot of things to like about Frankie Edgar. Uh, one of the best lightweights, if not the best lightweight of all time. And uh, I don't think he's done yet. I really don't. Yeah, that's all I got. Uh, you got an interview for us or something, don't you? Uh, yeah, uh, on the way out here, we are going to interview the president of Alliance MMA, Rob Haydack. Uh, if you're not familiar, Alliance MMA, not the not the gym in, in San Diego, but literally the Alliance of MMA Promotions, um, are doing big things. They're a public company. You can buy stock in the company on NASDAQ. The, the ticker is AMMA. Um, they just acquired Victory Fighting Championship, which you can watch on UFC Fight Pass. Uh, they own the CFFC, uh, Roy Engelbrecht Promotions here in Southern California, the OC Fight Club all part of Alliance MMA, and we're going to talk about uh, what the vision is for this company and its alliance of promotions and how Rob Haydeck, uh wants to change the way that fighters come up and get to the big shows like Bellator and the Ultimate Fighting Championship. So uh, stay tuned for that. Anything on the way out, Fridley, that you want to hit? No, I'm all set. Perfect. Uh, he's Mike Fridley. I'm TJ DeSantis. Rob Haydeck is next. You're listening to Beatdown. This is the Sherdog sure Radio Network. Yeah. 
Pleased to be joined now by Rob Haydeck. He, uh, well, you know what? I don't even, is it, is it president of Alliance MMA? That's correct, TJ. I'm the president of Alliance MMA. You know, I, I caught myself almost saying uh, president of Victory Fighting Championship, but that's the latest acquisition by Alliance MMA. You guys are doing some really big things, Rob. And I, I look at what's going on, um, you know, in, in the world of mixed martial arts, and it, it's not often we see these companies go public. And that's what Alliance MMA has been able to do here in a short amount of time uh, being around. The last time I remember a mixed martial arts company being public, it was the International Fight League, and we know how that all ended. Um, obviously, when, when Alliance got together and, and started thinking, they, they thought a, a lot broader, a lot bigger than uh, I, I think the typical mixed martial arts uh, organizations. Tell me that original thought process when you guys you know sat at the table and said, all right, let's go ahead and let's do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Back in the day for past six, seven years, I've been the president of Cage Fury Fighting Championships based in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, Mike Constantino and I, uh, several years ago, started discussing how we could expand around the country and, and really grow the MMA organization. And essentially what we came up with was we identified that throughout the country there's a number of great regional based MMA organizations and you know we thought about the concept we sort of put pen to paper wrote a business plan uh, met some folks that were interested in investing in it and uh, you know we formed Alliance MMA with the vision of acquiring the top regional MMA promotions around the country and ultimately becoming the number one feeder organization to the world of MMA. Now, you mentioned being a feeder organization. That is a drastic shift compared to yeah. the MMA promotions that came out you know, a decade ago. A lot of people wanted to come out and take over the world, and they had no problem going head-to-head -head against the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And obviously, for most, 99% of those promotions, they all end up going by the wayside because you can't take on the 800-pound gorilla uh, in the Ultimate Fighting Championship, at least immediately. You have to slowly build. The takeover and the acquisition of some of these smaller promotions that you guys have acquired, I mean, we're, we're most recently talking about Victory Fighting Championship. I mean, Victory is a, a a mixed martial arts promotion that a lot of people are aware of lately because of their UFC Fight Pass deal, but this is a, a promotion that I drove hundreds of miles living in the Midwest, you know, 15 years ago to go see down in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and Omaha, Nebraska, um, to go out and, and, and get these promotions and, and to call yourself a feeder league, um, that, that's – I hate to say it because it sounds like I'm demeaning, but uh, it's very logical, Rob. And for whatever reason, a lot of people haven't really thought like this. What makes you guys different? How, how did you guys come to this um, sort of vision and implementation? Well, it, it's definitely unique in the fact that we have no delusions – of messing with the 800-pound gorilla or Bellator for that matter. Um, everyone, to your point, that has come out and suffered from those delusions, thinking they can compete, um, you know, that was approach they took. I looked at the history of MMA and the organizations, and no one's been successful at that. Um, that's not a plan of ours. We look at what we're doing as being very complementary to both the UFC, Bellator, and, and even 1FC for that matter. Um, you know, sort of the college football to the NFL, if you will. Um, we want to establish high-level, top-quality prospects 
all throughout the country and set them up for the next step, which is the UFC and Bellator. So our business model has no vision of ever competing with those guys. Um, we look at them as partners and, uh, you know, that that's our goal. Victory obviously was a great acquisition for us. Um, we've been talking with Ryan for a number of months. Our vetting process is very extensive. Um, and we're, we're excited to have them on board. Um, you mentioned CFFC and now Victory Fighting Championship. Uh, I believe you uh, took over the, the OC Fight Club, which was uh, Roy Engelbrecht's brainchild. Yeah. Um, these are notable promotions. These are obviously um, the, the, the bigger leagues of the minor leagues, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have Shogun Fights, which has an event tomorrow night. They're down in Baltimore run by a great promoter, our general manager, John Rollo, who's been in the sport for a while. Um, he does it inside the Baltimore arena. It's an amazing show. We have NFC down in Atlanta, who next weekend will be celebrating its 100th event. Um, we have promotions in Florida. We have V3 in Memphis. Um, and you just mentioned Roy Engelbrecht. And then we have promotions uh, up in Seattle, Koga. So we've got some really great promotions um, we're building out our infrastructure every day, and ironically enough, today's our one-year anniversary from when we went public. Um, and I look back on day one to compare to where we're at today, and, and things are really exciting. Congrats. I mean, that's, that's uh, definitely a big deal, and uh, so far, so good. Uh, I'm curious, when you acquire these promotions, obviously uh, – it's under a new umbrella, but how much does the actual promotion change? Do the players get swapped out, or is this largely you acquire these promotions and it's business as usual? Um, in a lot of ways, it's business as usual. When we look at these promotions as part of our vetting process, we're pretty smart to know that the promotion is is as good as the person running it. So as part of our acquisition, we retain – all the owners as the GMs of that promotion, they sign a long-term employment agreement um, and we still have them running the promotion um, without them. You know, my opinion is that promotion is, is, is almost worthless. So it's very important for us in our process to retain those people. And as I mentioned, the Roy Engelbrecht's, the John Rollo's and now the Ryan Stoddard, they're a key component in our acquisition. So we make sure that that's a top priority. Do you plan on becoming um, like a managerial side of things where you would control your fighters and, and their next move? Or is this something where you just plan on being a network of promoters and helping these fighters along? You know, we're we're willing to look at anything and diversify ourselves in the MMA space. Um, one of our acquisitions a few months back was Sucker Punch. And that really came about because I knew both Brian's uh, hamper and um, – butler very well and you know they're good guys and what we want to do is we want to develop athletes whether we control the management side of that or, or we don't um that's really irrelevant but we we did want to offer service to those top prospects that don't have quality management and are looking to get to the next level when we get there we want to give them the support there as well obviously you have big vision um you've acquired these promotions and and have expanded your reach uh, when is enough enough, though? Do you still plan on acquiring more shows, or do, do you feel like you're in a good enough spot where you can ease back the acquisition process? 
Um, we, we are currently vetting a couple other promotions. There will come a point where we feel that we've penetrated the U.S. market enough to the point that we can take existing brands and even scale them uh, additionally. You know, Victory Fighting Championships with the UFC Fight Pass platform really allows Ryan and, and VFC to pretty much go anywhere in the country and, and fighters are going to want to fight on that card just simply because of the exposure. Um, I, we have identified um, a few other regional promotions that are on our radar. Um, we're, we're constantly engaged in conversations, but it, but it has to be the right fit both ways. Um, I do see us doing additional acquisitions. Um, we're not just looking to acquire anybody. It has to make sense. And uh, we will continue down that road, um, but we're not out there saying there's a specific number that we need to hit. Alliance MMA President Robert Haydack joining me now here on B-Town on the Sure Dog Radio Network. Uh, you mentioned the Fight Pass deal. That is really big for Victory Fighting Championship. Um, but with, with this massive group of promotions that you guys have, do you ever foresee Alliance coming up with its own distribution model where you can get your own content out there? Or are you largely going to be following the same traditional model of potentially getting UFC Fight Pass deals or trying to get you know, regional television? Right. Early on, um, pre-IPO, um, or at the IPO, I should say, we, we acquired the rights to Go Fight Live, which was a streaming platform. Um, in addition to that acquisition, we retain library rights to approximately 10,000 plus hours of fighting footage. Um, part of that strategy was that we would eventually upgrade that platform, develop our own platform, and stream all of our fights. We're at that point today. We are streaming our fights. Um, we've got great analytics on those. And, um, you know, but we are also actively engaged in conversations with other distribution platforms. Um, we've been on Comcast. We're currently on Comcast in a few different markets. We've had our content on CBS Sports. So we have a lot of uh, existing and ongoing conversations taking place with different distribution platforms throughout the U.S. and international for that matter. When you look at co-promotion in mixed martial arts, it's, it's pretty rare. It hasn't happened, at least at the highest levels. Regionally, it has to a certain extent. Um, with your promotions, do you ever feel like there's co-promotion ideas where you could unify championships and, and, and make this regional circuit um, more uh, alluring to want to fight for these promotions to maybe get on the radar and, and maybe accomplish something great before even getting a call from you know the bigger shows like you're talking about a absolutely we, we've started to mess with that a little bit where we've had champion versus champion and it's resonating really well we we like the approach that you know fighters from the west coast can meet the fighters from the east coast or down south and, you know, sort of make it of a competitive environment. So that is definitely part of our strategy where we want to have a unified champion within Alliance MMA. You know, we currently have our regional champions, but we also want to unify them um, across Alliance. So that's something that we're looking to do more of in 2018 and develop. Now, I'm not trying to put the cart in front of the horses by any means, but uh, I'm curious, uh, we're talking a lot of uh, domestic and, and, and regional promotions. Do you, do you ever feel like this alliance brand could uh, extend globally and, and move into markets such as Asia and Europe? Yeah, we, we, we have vetted uh, some companies outside the U.S. 
Um, currently, our focus is here domestically. We've got quite an infrastructure being built here. We've got some some folks that have been in the MMA space for a number of years, the Jim Burns, the Burt Watson, our board member, Henzo Gracie. So we're really methodical and being smart about everything that we approach. As much as I'd like to jump into some international markets, the right thing for us to do right now is tighten up uh, what we have here at home. And when we're ready, we'll make that that move. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier. You guys are, are logic, uh, logically thinking about things and uh, that, that is something that uh, seems to destroy a lot of promoters, thinking illogically and outside of the box a bit too much. Um, you mentioned it's been a year since you've gone public. Uh, assess the last year and tell me what the next uh, two to three to five years are going to look like. Um, I think it's been, for us internally, it's really been a feeling out process. Um, because we're publicly traded, uh, most of the folks involved in Alliance MMA don't come from, you know, the Wall Street world. So we're used to the small business approach and it's finding that balance between our executive team who understands the Wall Street side and our side, which understands the MMA. Um, we've got a great team. We've got a great CEO and Paul Danner um, who comes from the Wall Street side. I'm more of a MMA background. So, you know, Paul and I bounce ideas off of each other daily. And what I may think be would be good in our space might not be so in the Wall Street side. So I would say year one has really been, you know, evaluating what we have uh, internally and making sure that whatever steps we make are beneficial to our shareholders in the long run. Um, we've got an established board of directors. Um, you know, that has both MMA insiders and Wall Street folks. So we've got a really a, a great balance. And I, and I think it's year one to me has been a really an understanding on each side, sort of understanding the other side, if that makes sense. Mm, certainly. Um, you mentioned being publicly traded. I love the uh, NASDAQ symbol. Uh, you can find yes. it AMMA. I've added it to my iPhone. I'm not a stockholder by any means. But it's, it's kind of neat to actually have a, a use for my uh, stock uh, button on my iPhone to see how you guys are doing. It's, it's not something that you see every day in mixed martial arts. It's been done before, but uh, not done, I, I think, as, as well as you guys are doing it. And uh, right. I, wish, I wish you continued success, Robert. I appreciate the time. And uh, best of luck going forward here with Alliance MMA. Thanks, TJ. Awesome, Robert. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate the time.